You know, some parts of Scripture read a little more, I don't know, with a little more excitement than other parts. And this section of 1 Kings is a page-turner. Last week in worship, you might have heard about King Solomon, son of David, famously built a temple for the Lord. It was a wonder of the ancient world. Solomon is wise and shrewd and successful in most ways that kings are measured in this world. But as his reign goes on, enemies begin to accumulate. And eventually, the northern tribes of Israel secede from the one kingdom that David had found a way to hold together. For some time after the north secedes, the south, which was called Judah, suffers through really bad kings who are basically out to create their own glory, which most kings do. This was the kind of thing, after all, that the Lord was warning his people about when they said, we want a king. He's like, eh, I don't know that you do. But Ahab, King Ahab, is an especially special bad guy. He marries a woman called Jezebel and takes her God, too. And the God is called Baal, or B-A-A-L, Baal. I'm not exactly sure how to say it, but as Scripture says, Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord than had all the kings of Israel before him. So that's saying something, right? And this is when we meet this Elijah. Elijah is a prophet, and he comes before the king, and basically he has to come before the king to tell him, by the way, Ahab, there's going to be a terrible drought in your land. Well, nobody wants to hear that. So Elijah earns a spot on a certain list Ahab keeps. But for about three years after that, Elijah steers clear of Ahab altogether and kind of just does his own thing. This is when he's serving the widow at Zarephath. This is when he's resurrecting that woman's son. Things like that. Amazing things. Elijah is an amazing prophet. In year three, Elijah confronts Ahab again. And the scene, well, it feels like an old western. I love what they say to each other. Ahab, who obviously is the one wearing a black hat in this show, he says, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah, who would be dressed in white, I would think, fires back saying, I haven't troubled Israel, but you have, you Baal worshiper. Good one, Elijah, right? <laughs> and so Elijah names his challenge, almost like saying, tomorrow, dawn, guns. But he doesn't say that because there's no guns yet. Elijah says, Mount Carmel, as soon as possible. Bring your Baal prophets, and we'll see who the real Lord is. So we come upon this amazing scene. 450 prophets of Baal. 400 prophets of Asherah, who is another of Jezebel's false gods, because if you have one, why not have two? And one Elijah. One against 850. Of course, Elijah is the prophet of the one true God. So you can almost hear the whistle and the guitar music from that Clint Eastwood western fistful of dollars, you know. And tumbleweed going through. There's no tumbleweed there, though. Anyway, as he comes into town ready to take on all the bad guys, all by himself, Elijah starts by trash-talking. Like, seriously, there's trash-talking in this part of Scripture. He gets in front of all the people who have come out to watch the spectacle because they have an audience, and he says, how long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. 
and the people don't answer at all. So Elijah throws down the challenge, and he says, I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's number is 450. So here's what we're going to do. Take two bulls. You Baal prophets can pick the one you want first. You get first pick. I'll take the other. Each of us is going to prepare our own bull. We're going to put it on wood, and we're going to put no fire to it. Then you call on your God, I'll call upon the Lord, and the God who answers by fire is God indeed. And everybody says, well spoken, like great idea. It's like a prophet off. So the Baal prophets prepare their bull, and from morning till noon, they cry out, oh, Baal, answer us. And they're screaming and making a scene. They're limping around the altar doing all these things. And they cut themselves, as is their custom. And Elijah continues to trash talk. He's like, come on then, louder. Your God must not be able to hear you. Well, surely he is a God though, right? Maybe he's meditating or going to the bathroom, Elijah says. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he needs to wake up. Cry out louder, just absolutely making fun of them. But for as long as they're wailing, there was no voice. There's no answer. There's no response at all. So Elijah starts his process all by himself. Remember, there's 450 of those guys, 400 more really, and there's one of him. So he starts his process. He prepares the bull, puts it on the wood, then he starts digging a trench. Now, if you're in the audience, you've got to be wondering, what is he digging a trench for? He fills the trench with water. Well, that's not, that's not going to help it set on fire, right? He pours water, in fact, over the whole thing, not just once, but three times, lots of it, and that's when he calls upon the Lord. Like, he's just made it 20 million times harder, and he says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, and even licked up all the water that was in the trench. And guess what everybody said? The Lord indeed is God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all the Baal prophets knew they're in trouble. The king and queen, of course, look like idiots, right? Well, no pride-filled royalty are going to allow some scruffy-looking prophet to show them up without consequence. Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah saying, you're dead. Look for it to happen by this time tomorrow. And so Scripture tells us Elijah was afraid, rightly so. He got up and he fled for his life. When he came to Beersheba, which is about as far away as he could get and still be in the country, he then went a little farther. Without his servant even, he's left everybody else in the dust, he went another full day into the wilderness. So I want you to think, if you wanted to get lost, if you needed to hide, where would you go? Like, how far could you get in two days? By foot, Imagine, you know, the, the President of the United States is after you, and he's got every kind of power and surveillance at the tip of his fingers, and like, how would you try to escape from that level of power? Because that's what Elijah's being chased by, is the most powerful woman in the land. So Elijah has run and run and run, and where has he gotten? He has gotten to nowhere. Right in the middle of nowhere is where he is. And the scene the writer of this story paints 
Well, it's almost like he's gotten into like parts out west that look like Monument Valley. It's just like desert. That's kind of what I have in my mind. Looks like a desert with a solitary one little broom tree. A spent Elijah sits down under this tree and asks the Lord that he might just die. He's feeling pretty sorry for himself at this point. He says, take away my life, O Lord, for I am no better than my ancestors. Have you ever felt this way? Like, just take me now, God. Things haven't panned out. I gave it my best and it doesn't seem like it was enough. Or maybe I I messed up. Just take me now. So, what does God say? Well, more like, what does God do? God sends an angel who touches Elijah, the Scripture says. That doesn't happen very often in Scripture. Jacob dreams of angels. Mary is visited by an angel. Elijah is touched by an angel who then says to him, and I'm not sure if this is said lovingly or like a kick in the butt, but the angel says, get up and eat. And Elijah does and then goes back to sleep. And the angel comes a second time, touches him again, and this time says, get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. And this text always makes me remember a Bible study on this story when I was in high school. Our leader read this and said, This was helpful to him, especially on Sundays when he didn't feel like coming to church. We didn't have Wednesday night worship like this. When he just wanted to sleep in on Sunday mornings, he'd remember the angel telling Elijah to get up and eat, otherwise the journey would be too much for you. He felt like the week ahead was typically too much for him if he didn't get himself out of bed and have that meal at the rail, commune. So Elijah gets up and eats and travels a lot further even, a long way to the mountain of God. Elijah makes his way into a cave there, and that is where God speaks to Elijah directly. What are you doing here, Elijah? And this is the prayer moment of the story. I think it teaches us well what we can share with God in prayer, how open we can be. We can tell God everything. Because here, Elijah just complains. He just lets it out. I did everything I could, and now I'm all alone, and they're going to kill me. And God listens. And God makes an appointment right then and there to draw himself and Elijah even closer to each other. God wants to be closer to us, not to make us further distant. Because again, this is another lesson about prayer. As we speak to God, we're drawn closer and closer and closer into God's presence. And so God says, go outside this cave. Stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. What does that look like? I don't know. But that's the story. And God doesn't just want to say something to Elijah, apparently, because God's already doing that. God wants Elijah to experience something about God. Because sometimes God wants to get beyond just the words and have us experience something. I want to show you something. So go outside, God says. And Elijah obeys. And that's when we come to the, probably the most famous part of this story. There was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains, breaking rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. 
And after the wind, there was a great earthquake. Imagine how scary and loud and an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. Imagine how hot being in a fire in the midst of this nowhere would feel, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of utter and complete sheer silence. And a voice came to him and said the same thing as before, only this time Elijah is more prepared to listen, which is another lesson about prayer. Oftentimes it's not about what we say to God and what we want to say to God, it's about how able are we to hear God. And here God has made space for Elijah to hear him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah restates his claim that he feels alone, that he feels unable to carry his burdens any further. Well, what an honest response. And I think any of us can relate. A pandemic and all its uncertainty, all the conflict, add that to just the regular old hard stuff of life that we've been We've been living like this for a while now, and at our worst, we escape like Elijah from using our gifts, from remembering our hope. At our worst, we retreat into our fear and try to stay alone as though that's going to make things better, and we hide, just waiting for everything to come to an end, you know, just let let me know when it's over kind of thing. Elijah has done his best, but now feels like a failure and draws himself away from his own work. Parents might know how this feels. Some days we think, oh, I did my best. Earlier today, I think we had a moment, but now I feel like I'm a failure. I'm not getting through. I can't carry this burden any further. Husbands and wives may know how this feels. Will he ever understand what I need? Will she ever listen to me? We've done our best for these many years, and we're still just fighting about the same old stuff. We can't carry this burden any further. Or as some of us look at our life's work, we might wonder, maybe I'm not making a difference at all. So what's the point of my work anyway? Or kids, do you ever feel like you're making no progress in a class or on a team or in a relationship? Like, what's the point? Elijah has just proven like really clearly to the most influential people of Israel that the Lord is the one true God. I mean, he made a watered-down offering ignite. And after that greatest success, he becomes enemy number one. He's had it. He's done. Elijah out, and so he escapes. And God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Turns out that just because Elijah doesn't see a way forward… Just because he doesn't feel like there's a way out of this, that doesn't mean God hasn't created a way forward for him. Creating something from nothing is kind of what God does. It's kind of God's thing. So there is a way for Elijah. There is a way for each of us when we feel like we've come to a dead end. But we come to trust our own vision, our own expectations of the future so much that when life happens and inevitably twists our expectations into a whole other story, we think that since our vision was wrong, well, then there must be no vision to see. 
If I can't see it, it must not be there. And this is where God says, hold on. I hold your future. God promises that we can have purpose every day. Even the days after a disaster strikes in our lives, even in the days after we become convinced we're just ready to die, God says, no, no. What are you doing here, escaping? Go back out there. Keep being you. The world needs you to be you. That's what he's telling Elijah. Go, return. Do the things you do. And Elijah does. He anoints a king here and a prophet there. He does the things that God calls him to do. Elijah is suffering, and that is precisely where and when God shows up. God doesn't show up in the fireworks of more chaos like the wind or an earthquake or a fire. God comes in peace into Elijah's suffering, into our suffering to sustain us. Maybe an angel needs to tap on the shoulder or kick somebody awake from time to time. We need to be fed in order to survive the journey that is life, spiritually fed. But as much as anything this story wants to share is that God comes to us in a still, small voice and always offers sustenance that will help us live into a future that matters. Perhaps it matters more than we can see even through the worst of what life can bring, even through death. God sustains us always. And so we praise God, saying thanks be to God. Amen.